You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Uh-oh, it looks like we're in trouble. Last week's Old Testament lesson warned us about false prophets. Specifically, how it is characteristic of a false prophet to refuse to warn of judgment, to review, refuse to call to repentance. And now, a week later, the texts are this Sunday deal with judgment and hell. We've been set up. We've got to talk about judgment or else we run the danger of being false prophets. Most people don't like talking about hell. The idea of God's judgment is an extremely difficult subject. Just look, for example, at your Old Testament reading today. The Old Testament lectionary committee leaves off a verse at the end of this passage which reads, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For the wor their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Yikes! I understand why you'd want to leave that part out. When the Bible speaks about fate of those who rebel against God, it uses horrifying imagery, unquenchable fire, worms that live forever, outer darkness, intense weeping and anger that is gnashing of teeth. It is a sobering and terrible thing to talk about God's judgment. The LCMS theologian Franz Pieper writes, the thought of a never-ending agony of rational beings fully realizing their distressing plight is so appalling that it exceeds comprehension. Wow. Now one of our favorite ways to cope with the distressing nature of this question is to make it theoretical. In the Gospel reading today, we hear about a question asked of Jesus. Will those who are saved be few? It's a theoretical question about the number to be saved, and it was a common question for Jewish theologians at the time. The trouble is, though, it holds the subject at arm's length, making it a general question about others. It pretends that the problem is really someone else's and not my own. But Jesus' answer in this text attacks all our attempts to cope with God's judgment. He refuses to answer the question directly. Instead, he addresses everyone with his reply. For this is no theoretical question about others. It is a deeply existential question that concerns each and every person. Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. In other words, forget about the theoretical number of saved and be concerned in the first place with yourself and your own relationship with God. His answer here is addressed not at the skeptics or the scoffers, but those Jewish people who had been following him through his ministry, those who had dined with him and heard his teaching. To these people, Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow gate, for it is a very real possibility that when all is said and done and you approach God, he may not recognize you. Though you have Abraham as your ancestor, though you heard Jesus' teaching, there remains the possibility that God may in the end see you only in terms of your, of your, of your rebellion as workers of evil. These are haunting words, terrifying in fact. They are addressed to everyone, especially those who consider themselves on the good side of God's judgment. How can this be? How could God judge and condemn his people? or any people for that matter, how could some wind up inside while others outside? This is the crisis, of, this is the crisis and offense of the doctrine of condemnation. How could God judge his creatures which he had made? 
Part of the problem here is that we haven't thought clearly and deeply enough about what judgment is and what human beings are. Human beings, Franz Pieper writes, are made for communion with God. That is our purpose, our fulfillment, our thriving as creatures. Yet, as we all know, human beings rebelled. The, def the default setting of our human heart is rebellion. We deeply want to be the ones who define ourselves, our world, and our purpose. From the moment when Adam heard the serpent say, you will be like God, we have never let go of, the, of that idolatrous aspiration and the hope that God will leave us alone so that we can be our own gods. Sometimes we think of God's punishment as arbitrary, like God just decided to call our behavior bad when really it is indifferent. But that would not be a true judgment. A true judgment simply states the truth about a thing. To be judged by God, then, is simply for God to say what is already true. You have rejected me. Though your purpose and life are found in me, you have rejected it. I don't know you. So to be condemned by God is to be left in our rebellion. For God to let us have what we want leaves us to go our own way. Condemnation, one theologian writes, is sin's absolute fortification against the offer of salvation. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way, the doors of hell are locked from within. Hell is the state of being in which humans are left to exist in their rebellion, cut off from the, from the communion of God they were created to enjoy. This means that hell is in the first place a relational state in which human beings exist apart from communion with their creator. The Bible describes this with images of fire and worms and death and darkness to communicate the agony of hating the God you know is the author of life, of being left in all-consuming bitterness of an eternal rebellion. Calvin and Luther refer these frightful images to the torments of a conscience and internal fire that burns against God and against self. It's the physical, emotional, and spiritual distress of a bitter, self-consuming soul. I think perhaps the best description I have yet come across is found in Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead, where an old preacher describes it like this. If you want to inform yourself as to the nature of health, he, uh, as the nature of hell, don't hold your hand in a candle flame. Just ponder the meanest, most desolate place in your own soul. If that is the possibility that hangs over all of us, what is our hope? What is the narrow door for which we must strive? Is it moral perfection? Scrupulously following all God's rules? No. Moral behavior may in fact be one more attempt of the human heart to take the reins from God and construct our own salvation. Jesus made this clear when he rejected the Pharisees and the scribes and offered forgiveness to a harlot. You see, Jesus is the narrow door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name by which we must be saved. He is narrow, not in his love or his accessibility. Indeed, many from the north and the south and east and west will come and enter into God's feast through him. He is narrow, not in his moral requirements. For as Jesus said to the scrupulous Pharisees, sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes will enter God's feast first. Jesus already paid the price for every sin, the prostitute, the murderer, the Pharisee, and the Lutheran, through his suffering and death. No one is more worthy than another. Worth's got nothing to do with it. That is what makes the door narrow. 
There is no room for human worthiness. It can only fit those souls who, who, through repentance, have abandoned every attempt to be God, every attempt to merit forgiveness, every attempt to earn God's favor, and every attempt to be their own God. It is so narrow that only God can bring us through grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. By grace God has put to death your sinful and rebellious human nature in the waters of baptism and raised you to new life with his Son. By grace God has given you his Spirit, who calls, you in, who, who calls out in your hearts with groaning too deep for words. By grace, God, by, by grace God has claimed us as heirs of his promise. By grace he offers you forgiveness at the altar in the body and blood of his Son. By grace, God knows our names and has written it in his book of life. See if, condemnation, see if condemnation is being cut off from communion with God. Salvation is nothing less than this, union with God, knowing that Christ lives in you and therefore God knows you. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, God knows you as his child. Yet the question remains, if Christ is the way, if he is the narrow door, what does it mean to strive, as our gospel says? It means to fight the fight of faith. Hold on to Christ. When your sinful nature tries to draw you into your rebellion, hold on to Christ. When you fall and your sins convict you, hold on to Christ. When death and hell try to tell you that they are the end, hold on to Christ. This is a fight. It is brutal and long, but it is the fight that the Spirit himself is waging for you on your behalf. God is as good as his word. Hold on to it. Don't put your trust in anything else, not in your works, your status, or even your faith. Hold on to Christ and his cross. It's a narrow way, but it is enough. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.